Hey, everybody. This is uh, God's Hat. Today, I have a guest. We've spoken many times. We're not spoken, communicated via social media, but it has finally happened. Am I supposed to address you as Father Calvin Robinson now? Is that it? Dr. Gad, however you're comfortable, I'm fine, honestly. Okay, well, I guess that, that puts us at the first... Well, first, I should mention that you're a British uh, political commentator. You used to be a teacher. You're a political advisor. You, you've written as a journalist for all sorts of outlets. And recently, you were ordained as a deacon in the Anglican uh, sort of global church, not the Church of England. Maybe you can tell us what is the difference between a deacon and a priest. What is how, how is Anglicanism different from Lutheranism or uh, you know Calvinism? Y give us anything. By the way, I got this book ready for you, the original gangster <laughs> Martin Luther. Here I stand. So yes. take it away, Father. Are we, are we nailing notices on church doors? I like it. Uh, a deacon is the first step in ordained ministry. So you first you get ordained as a deacon, and this is in the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of England, the wide Anglican Church. As far as I know, uh, all pretty much all standard ordaining bodies. You get ordained as a deacon for the first year, roughly, usually. And most often than not, you are an assistant priest or a curate while you're a deacon. And it's your job to hunt out the sick and needy. It's your job to preach the gospel, as in quite literally on a Sunday, you are the one who reads the gospel reading. And it's, it's basically your job to be the minister of the good news, while the priest is the one who administers the sacraments. So there's the news and the sacraments separated together. Um, and then after a year, roughly speaking, you get ordained as a priest, sometimes more often than not. But there are people who are distinctive deacons and spend their entire ministry serving as a deacon. And that's that's a very respectable thing to do too. And I am obviously... Sorry, go ahead, finish your point. I am um, an Anglican rather than any other expression of the Christian church. And to me, that means that the, Re the Reformation was a process of returning to our roots, returning to scripture and disregarding a lot of politics that seemed to capture the... the church big c which of course was the roman catholic church at that time and you know throughout the middle ages it was quite a corrupt political entity less so these days well depends who you're talking to but um the reformation was separating us from that body whilst maintaining our faith as a nation and anglican obviously means the faith of the angles or english and it's rooted in our culture but if we were to say look at you know theologically in terms of scriptures what would be some of the main, I mean, I, I understand, for example, Martin Luther was against the indulgences, hence, you know, the Reformation and so on. Uh, but, you know, are there some substantive key issues on which the different denominations that I just mentioned, whether it be Calvinism, Lutheranism, yeah. Catholicism, that really are truly contradictory with each other? Not really contradictory, but the, the, there are lots of nuances. So Calvinists would believe in predestination, for example, and believe that either you are already chosen to be saved by God or you're already chosen to be disregarded by God. Whereas um, the more Catholics among us would say that actually we can all get into heaven um, through baptism and through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's where I fall in line with that. But within Ang Anglicanism in general, it's quite a broad church. I think the people that are more Calvinist and people that are more Catholic uh, on each end of the spectrum. So it's it's quite a, a balanced denomination in that regard. But as also, you know, between the Catholic end of the, the church, there are people that will believe in transubstantiation and people that will believe in the real presence and people that, that believe 
that the sacraments are entirely um, symbolic. Uh, so even there, there's, there's just no agreement on anything, really, other than the fundamentals that Christ died for our sins and he, he resurrected for our salvation and the, the Catholic creeds. The, the univer- when I say Catholic, I mean universal. The universal creeds uh, are what we truly believe as Christians. Have, since you mentioned Christ, and I and forgive me if I'm in any way blasphemous here, have you seen the ris- the recent image that's been floating around the internet, whereby a bunch of Dutch AI researchers generated the image of what Jesus would have looked like? And if you have, can you think of somebody that you might be speaking to, oh, say now that looks exactly like him? Have you seen the comparison? <laughs> no, seriously, no, have you? No, does it look like you? absolutely identical i mean as a matter of fact that image has been shared and i've been tagged maybe you know 10 million times by people and say how is this a picture of jesus that's just a picture of a young gad sad dad are you the second coming i that's uh, that's all i'm saying i can't (laughs) i can't give the good news but all i'm saying first of all my satire is very prophetic so maybe i tick the box of being a prophet Although maybe Jesus was taller, he didn't have green eyes. But other than that, we could be the same spirit. What do you think? I think we're all in the spirit of Christ, especially if we're baptized. What (laughs) an answer. Okay, so Lebanese Jews like yours truly, I'm not getting into heaven if I don't accept Jesus. I'm I'm, I'm screwed in that way. Yeah, but it's your choice. That's the beauty of free will. (laughs) Christ came to reconcile the jews and the gentiles i as a gentile i'm very i'm very happy with that <laughs> got you were, were you always uh someone who you know who had a religious bent or is this something that you you know mm. you you fostered and grow into later in life give us your kind of religiosity trajectory yeah. i always believed in god i always held a relationship with god i always felt that my prayers were answered. i always prayed i didn't always have a relationship with jesus or the church i had a real trouble um, getting involved in organized religion. I think institutions are corrupt and dangerous, frankly. And now that I've studied theology, I understand why, because they're made up of individuals and individuals are fallen and this is original sin. But I, I struggled really hard um, getting involved in for that reason. But when I did, and I always felt this nudge, I always felt this calling, this pulling towards it. But when I, when I gave in, I was so thankful because that experience with Christ changed my life, and which is why I am a minister now, hoping to helpfully lead other people towards an experience with Christ. Now, uh, I, I hope it's not inappropriate to to ask you this, but I think it's public. You were refused ordination by the Church of England because apparently you're, forgive me, these are their words, you're a pimp who engages in sexual exploitation and your uh, social media is too uh, spicy and so on. Is this the official reason why you you refuse ordination? Not the official reason. The official reason was there's no room in London. Okay. Uh, bearing in mind, I'd already been promised a parish. I'd already met with the parishioners and the priest. Um, the offer was already in place. And then at the very last minute, it was snatched away. It was political. It was because I'm too outspoken. I'm too conservative, both theologically and politically. And, you know, I, I write in the Telegraph and the Daily Mail and I talk on GB News, God forbid, uh, to normal folk. And that was a divisive issue. In fact, they used the word devices. They said it would be too um, turbulent is the word they used, actually, which uh, gives nods to the old fashioned get someone do something about this turbulent priest. You know, it, it's the problem is that 
all the bishops are liberal democrats they're all very liberal lefty liberals and they don't like conservatives because they think we're bigoted and out of date and old-fashioned and racist and xenophobic and transphobic and queerphobic and every other phobic there is but i think that's sad because they truly misunderstand what conservatism is about and that we're actually trying to conserve the faith as well as our culture and that sh i think that should be the job of a christian i don't think the job of a christian minister should be to catch up with the times or at least attempt to meet secular society where it is it should be a light in an ever darkening world and it really does feel like the world is darkening around us i know you talk about this all the time so how do you i mean if i were to think of all possible institutions probably the the religious institution would be the one that you know from a naive perspective you know on first sight you would think that's the one that would be most likely to be inoculated against you know parasitic ideas as i would say or you know the general wokeness you know virus yeah. So what what explains the fact that Anglicanism appears to have been, you know, uh, you know, uh, parasitized quite heavily by all of these uh, imbecilic ideas? Yeah. Uh, first of all, not just not Anglicanism, because fortunately, the body that I joined is Orthodox Anglican. So it, it's returned to scripture, it's returned to the church fathers, and it's done away with the parasitic uh, woke virus. And I the problem is the Church of England, the problem is the Episcopal Church in North America, and the same in Australia and Canada, the official state-related body, is because it has become another public institution. It's become another arm of government, and people who work in those bubbles, you know, it, the Church of England, the people who work in Lambeth Palace, or in literally in Westminster, they're in Westminster bubble, um, surrounded by Westminster liberal types who think that we have to say that, of course, people can make up their own gender now, not just define their own gender, but make up their own gender, because that's the caring, compassionate thing to do. And they forget that, well, actually, no, the, the book that we're supposed to be following clearly says that God made them male and God made them female, and that God made, that made them in his own image. Therefore, if we're telling people that they can mutilate their body and try and change from male to female, then first of all, it's an affront to God, because he, if he made us in his image and we're mutilating that image that's not a good thing to start with but secondly we're allowing people to lie not only to each other but to themselves and the gospel is rooted in truth christ is the way the truth and the life and all of these lessons seem to have been forgotten because they'd rather appear to be good people than spend the work being good people and i think that is to me the essence of virtue signaling it's ticking the right box saying the right tagline the right catchphrase rather than doing what's difficult and that is tough love that is saying, no, you are your body. You're not in the wrong body. You are your body. And that's okay, because you should love your body. You should love who you are, because Christ loves you for who you are, because he knew you before you were born. He knew you before you were thought of. You were planned all along. You are who you are meant to be. That's do the you, compassionate thing. No, I got you. Uh, do you think, uh, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to uh, be this disrespectful of your religious views, but no, uh, no. it's worthwhile to ask. Do you think that one can be moral, void of a religious compass no quite simply no as in can someone be moral without a religious compass yes no they can't and this is the problem we have in the west right now is that all these people say oh i have good moral values but i don't have a religion i don't need a religion it's like where do you think you got your moral values from? If you were brought up in the Middle East, do you think you'd still have the same moral values? You have Christian moral values, more likely than not, if you're brought up in a Christian country, which is what Great Britain is, whether you adhere to the, to the religion or not. And, uh, you know, British values came from Christian values. They were synonymous for, well, 
2,000 years, um, people seem detached from that. They seem superior to that. They seem to think that we're, we're beyond that now. We don't need any of that now. But we can already see that morality is skewed all over the place and people don't know where they fall in accordance to each other anymore because there isn't a, a sense of rootedness, whether that's in place, in scripture or anything. And we need that, don't we? So let me just offer a, a counterpoint. I, I don't expect that it's going to change your, your views, but just for the audience to kind of hear a different view. Uh, as an, So I'm, I'm, of course, very much rooted historically in my faith as a Jew, but more for earthly reasons. In other words, I don't necessarily believe in, in all of the religious elements while whilst being Jewish. Now, what I'm does someone, that mean, Dad? Well, okay. Uh, there are multiple, many attributes that define my Jewish identity, one of which is, you know, do I light the candles on Shabbat at a particular time because, you know, the Talmudic, uh, you know, the edict says that it should be at 721, but not 722 and so on. So the, the ritualistic elements of the religion, I could not take seriously while still recognizing that I am a member of a historical tribe that has a shared heritage. So very much, if if you forgive me for vulgar, vulgarizing it in the same way that you know, if I'm a member of the club called Manchester City, there is a certain tradition that comes with that. Mm. And if I'm a member with a Fulham, there is another tradition that comes with that. We, I, I yeah. completely think that it is a natural instinct for people to be religious. I think the default value is for people to be religious and not to be uh, non-believers. And therefore, I can fully uh banned to have appartenance as we say in french with my historical heritage because we do have such a shared reality no one has lived their religion more than i have i ex escaped execution in lebanon right but yet i don't have to literally believe that we should take the insolent children to the gates of the city and stone them to death right uh i could say oh it's allegorical it's metaphorical i can do all kinds of mental gymnastics so i can be very much committed to my jewish heritage without necessarily being a practicing Jew in every possible way that the Hasidic Jew would expect of me. Does that answer right. your question? It does, it does. And I would say that you said we all have this innate um, uh, need or, for, for religion or relationship with religion. I think what that is, is our innate understanding of God. I think we all are born with the understanding and knowledge that there is a God. And some of us ch chase that feeling and some of us try to avoid that feeling. But in terms of... Uh, the Jewishness that we just talked about, I think actually that's what Christianity was an answer to. I think without, without getting onto too much dodgy ground, I think there was this, we know there is a law, there is God's law, but I think there was a culture around the law with additional um, traditions that people got hung up on. And I think, I think the, one of the purposes that I think Christ came to us was to say, actually, we're getting stuck on some things that either I didn't tell you to do or that you've taken uh, quite literally that shouldn't have been literally and this and that and he's come to fulfill the law and say look this is how you live according to what i wanted you to do uh, I, I think that christ is the answer to the problem you described so just so i can finish my point about uh, because you asked me what does it mean to be jewish without you know being ritualistically jewish yeah. i wanted to make the, the argument about how you can be moral without being religious uh evolutionists such as myself argue that everything that we are, not just our morphological features, but even our minds are due to a process of evolution. Therefore, our moral compass 
doesn't exist outside the evolutionary forces that have also led to the evolution of our pancreas and our hearts. And there are very, there are many, many studies that have been done both on humans, on other animals, using game theory, using genetics, using cross-cultural comparisons that offer very compelling reasons why we would have evolved our morality. So that's, so that's, an, and I'm not, again, I'm not trying to convince mm-hmm. you away from religiosity, but mm-hmm. just, just to offer you an alternative scientific explanation for why we have our moral compass. The second thing I would say is that for me, it's a lot more impressive if you want to talk about pure piety, for me to be moral and do the right thing simply for the deontological virtue of doing the right thing is a much greater thing, much superior thing than to do it because someone willed me to do it because there's a big guy who is otherwise going to judge me harshly or not so that I can do it. But then how do you know what is the right thing? Because there are deontological uh, absolute truths that allow for the proper functioning of society, right? So for example, reciprocal altruism, the fact tit for tat, that if I do something good for you, you should do something good for me. There are very clear evolutionary reasons why for social species, we would have evolved this mechanism of tit for tat, right? We see it in other animals, reciprocal grooming, right? They, I groom the parasites off your back because you can't reach that stuff. And then the expectation is that you will do it for me. If we renege on that social contract, then it, things go awry. So there are many, many ways by which we can argue that a particular um, edict that is inscribed in, in, in religious language could have simply evolved in the same way that we've evolved opposable thumbs. You don't have to comment on that, but if you'd like to, please go ahead. I think there's, there's something in that. And I don't think science is separate to faith. I think it comes from, from faith and that they're very closely linked together. But the argument I would say about moral values is if it is purely um, evolutionary, then why do we have such different moral values uh, around the world when we've all, when we've all evolved the sa- in the same way from the same genome? I would say that there's something deeper than just evolution at play. All right, we'll leave it there. But thank you for at least uh, it's it's always I'm always you know, while I can be very spicy on social media, whenever I invite a guest, I'm always yeah. very, very respectful because, you, you know, it's part of the hospitality tradition from the Middle East. No, so, I love a challenge. It's fine. It's oh, yeah. well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Okay, let's move away from religion. First, uh, my deepest condolences regarding the recent uh, passing of uh, the Queen. So I can't speak for all Canadians, but I can speak for myself. I know that you. I've heard you on several shows. You seem to be you know, personally affected by it, as were many Brits. Do you want to comment at all about that? And then I'll mention a few other things about the monarchy, but take it away. Yeah, I think it was, it's, it's very sad because she's been a major part of our lives, uh, well, for, for the entirety of my life, at least. Um, so any change like that is going to affect people. But also, it's more personal than that. It's more sentimental than that. She does feel like a grandma figure for the country. And also, for, for me as a Christian, she was one of the foundations of the faith. Being the defender of the faith and the supreme governor of the Church of England meant that the highest figure in our country, that the literal physical embodiment of our constitution was underpinning our religion, making sure that we are still a religious um, society. And with her gone, it, it puts questions across all of that. Uh, we, we're yet to see where King Charles will fall on on these issues of faith. Well, he's mentioned that he has a faith, but he hasn't mentioned our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that in itself is is, uh, an implicit problem. But in in regards to Her Majesty the Queen, 
I, I feel like she was the defender of our civil liberties. I know we've had a troubling couple of years and it's, it's more difficult to see that in, in the smaller picture. But in the bigger picture, while we have a queen who is the head of state, we cannot have a dictator who imposes martial law. We cannot have a, cr a corrupt judicial system. We can't have um, things that we see in other parts of the world because our democratic process is that we have a sovereign who is above our politicians in stature, but under them in power. And I think that, that fine balance is so, so important to our way of life. What's the, you, you know, if you were to survey all Brits regarding whether they're pro or, you know, anti-monarchist, what, what's the current number like? It's uh, the majority of people are monarchists. Oh, is that right? And I think that, yeah, I think the number's even gone up since the death, especially in places like Scotland, where they were looking at, you know, independence and become a republic and things. Well, they, I don't think they, if they did get independence, I don't think they'd become a republic. But in places where the monarchy wasn't strong, it's gone up since the death. It's, it's been a uniting factor. I think that's important too. The silver lining of death, you know, death is sad, but it brings us together as a family. Do, do you think that those who are anti-monarchists and use kind of the argument, oh, you know, they're, they're, they're using taxpayer funds and so on. Do you think that there is value in the argument that if the monarchy, forgive the term, were streamlined, instead of having 683 big castles, we bring it down to 200 instead of having nine. I'm being facetious, but you, you got my point. <laughs> instead of it being so grand, we can yeah. still maintain the benefits of that institution, but while streamlining it so that then we can tackle some of the concern, the main concerns of the anti-monarchists. Does that make sense or or it doesn't? It doesn't make sense to me, no. I haven't heard any anti-monarchist um, theories that do make sense. The whole taxpayer thing, I mean, we pay like 50p a year or something for them, and the value that we get in return is massive. If you're looking at it just from an economic standpoint, the, the amount of tourism we get and all that, but it's not about that. It's, it is about them being constitutional. The idea that if we look at what's happening in America, where the Republicans and, and the Democrats are going further and further apart, more and more polarised. We don't have that issue here. As in, even if we did in our politics, we've got someone who is above the politics and separate, apolitical, so that our system doesn't become so tribal. That's important too. But we have a slimline monarchy. We are, there, there aren't that many palaces and castles. But even if we did go down the route, you know, lots of European monarchs are slimlined. And I think it's a great shame because the grandeur, the splendour, that's important too. Especially, you know, Roger Scruton talks about this in times of struggle, in times of crisis, everyone deserves access to beauty. And that's what we have in this country. We've got our grand cathedrals, we've got our grand palaces that anyone could visit. And even if you can't afford to live in one, you can at least go and experience it. And beauty is transcendental. It's so important to the soul. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned uh, Sir Roger Scruton. Is that right? Isn't he, wasn't he nice? It yeah. is, it is, it is. Uh, he is someone that I discovered, I mean, I mean, late, not not that I discovered him yesterday, but that, you know, I didn't know him, say, 10 years ago. And when I did discover him, you know, I, I, I fell in love with some of his stuff. And then I was very, very excited to to have been to have come very close to actually uh, holding a chat with him. And then he uh, regrettably uh, passed away. Uh, and I think he would have been, I mean, probably Christopher Hitchens. Roger Scruton were, would, would have been two of the guys, you know, top of mind that I would have loved to to have gotten to yeah. know personally, but regrettably never did. Did you ever have a chance to interact with uh, Sir uh, Roger? Unfortunately not. I know his, his his wife, Sophie, and I've got lots of friends who are friends uh, of Sir Roger. Unfortunately, I didn't get the opportunity to talk to him personally. And I do regret that. Uh, the same with Christopher Hitchens. I think they were 
the last true conservatives uh, in England. I don't, I can't think of any of the top of my head, to be honest with you. That's how sad things have gotten. And you know, they're you know, to use kind of my uh, parlance from from the parasitic mind. I mean, they were real honey badgers. I mean, th- slightly different styles. Maybe Rich, uh, Christopher Hitchens a bit more, you know, f- you know, direct in his style. But they 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 believed in their convictions, uh, their, uh, the strength of their convictions, and they're they're going to enunciate why they believe them. They're never going to be bullied into uh, equivocating or apologizing. And where have those individuals gone today, uh, Calvin? Good question. I mean, he, Sir Roger really did get bullied. He got booted out of his role in government. It was awful what we saw happen to him. And this was by the Conservatives, so-called Conservatives. The problem with our politics is that our politicians are ambitious careerists. Most of them are in the Westminster bubble, which is entirely liberal. So to get by and to get up that greasy pole, they adopt liberal values. Uh, but that's the politicians. I don't know where the philosophers are anymore. America still thankfully has Thomas Sewell, but he's he's very old. I'd love to meet him at some point. Me um, too. In, join join the queue. You know, in Canada you've got um you've got Jordan Peterson who's doing great work. Um I struggle. I really struggle to name a few. You're still doing good work, thank God. Um thank you. despite I, you know, COVID. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So your family's got COVID right now, right? Everybody. Uh, so my son now is is almost. I think he's out of it. We have we didn't test him recently, but he he had it first. Then I got it second. Then my wife got it third. And only I think last night my daughter tested positive. I mean, frankly, uh, it it wasn't different for me from say a typical bronchitis that I would get. I used to be asthmatic, so whenever I get a a bad cold that starts, you know, here in my sinuses, yeah. it always migrates to my chest and then becomes this kind of really nasty sounding cough because I used to be asthmatic. And so it was really nothing but that with some maybe slightly greater fatigue. I'm almost out of it. D- did you get it at all, Calvin? I did. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, I've had worse colds, but it, yeah. it was a pretty nasty cold. It was, it, it is nasty. Uh, although one thing that has helped me, uh, I mean, I was told not to exercise heavily, and frankly, I, I couldn't. I was feeling too sick. But what I did try to do is always stay in movement. And so I, even if I did uh, on the treadmill at very, very low pace, oh, really? I, I was still doing... And so that... Kept, now, I don't know if that's because I used to be asthmatic, and therefore my problems are my pulmonary you know, thing uh, mechanism. But that really kind of kept me open, and I think it really helped me. So there you go. Uh, all right, let's move on. W- one last question about sort of the, the monarchy thing, and then we'll move on to maybe some woke issues and you know some future trajectories that you might take in your career. Uh, Canada, as you may or may not know, is I think the only country in the Commonwealth that decided many years ago to, for- to forego uh, having Canadians be knighted. Now, from my mm. perspective, Professor Dr. Gatsad is great, but Professor Dr. S- Professor Dr. Sir Gatsad is even... They will be Sir first, I think. Oh, Sir first. Okay, well, yeah. I, I don't know the exact protocol. So I feel a bit slighted that yeah, we have the Queen on our... You know, it's the Queen versus wh- whomever the defendant is. The Queen is on the thing. But yet I don't get any of the benefits that would come with being knighted and so on. Can you put in a word for me to get some kind of honorary knight? <laughs> I can indeed. It's a disgrace that you haven't been honored yet. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Father. That makes perfect sense. Okay, let's let's move to some woke stuff. We can take this. Obviously, we could probably talk for hours about this. Uh, are are there many other religious figures such as yourself? I mean, I know we said that most of them tend to be kind of woke uh, that are open in their anti 
you know, woke activism as you are? Not on purpose. <laughs> really? Huh? Yeah. Yeah. So not even few, not uh, even secretly. You you don't you don't get a, a uh, uh, secretly yes, but not openly. Not openly. secretly. Secretly, there's there's plenty of support amongst the clergy and the laity, which is interesting, but not the bishops. The bishops are 99% woke, and that is the great shame because they are the gatekeepers, and that's what's keeping the church down. That's why, why numbers are dipping. But among the clergy, the ones that speak out on these issues are the ones that are being cancelled. And it's a great shame that they leave it until it's too late. Um, and it's what's worse than that is their peers don't support them. So I've had lots and lots of support privately. I haven't had anyone stand up for me publicly. Yeah, and it's the same with everyone else that I know that's been cancelled. Uh, there's a very, very good vicar who, when um, one of these wet uh, extremist uh, environmentalist groups posted something about don't have children because it's bad for the environment, so he said, "No, do have children. It's the most Christian thing you can do. Start a family." He's been disciplined for that uh, quite severely by the church, and he said, "But this is Christian teaching," and they said, "Well, we know it is, but it's incendiary. You know, this is how badly." the minds have been infected with this parasite and it's, uh, there's another vicar who worked in a church of england school a church school who said to the kids when they said when they asked him um, do i have to take on board this trans theory stuff that we're being taught all the time he said no you don't you can believe it or not believe it you have a choice he didn't say no the christian thing is is that we don't believe in this he said you have a choice whether you believe it or not he has been disciplined by the school by the church and the church have labeled him a safeguarding risk and the worst thing is gad they've labeled themselves a safeguarding risk saying that christian teaching could be a safeguarding concern it's like this is how bonkers the whole industry the old institution is but no these people are speaking up because they got cancelled uh but a few other friends that are you know in lawsuits with the church or, or this and that and they're starting to speak out now but people need to speak out before they get cancelled because it realizes, you know, the people who are busy doing their day-to-day -day job thinking, I don't want to stick my neck about the parapet. Eventually, it will be your turn. They will come for you eventually. Exactly. If we were to score, you know, Western countries along a continuum of wokeness, so let's take Hungary might be an, an example of supremely anti-woke, right? I visited uh, Hungary, uh, you know, back uh, a few months ago you know, with Orban and so on, and, and they're, you know, expressively anti-woke. Uh, yes. Regrettably, Canada, Sweden might be the epitome of wokeness. U United States might be somewhere in between and so on. Yeah. Where does Britain fit on the, on the wokeness continuum? Britain's as a, as a fork in the road. I'd say if, if Orban is one and Trudeau is 10, Britain's maybe a six or a seven right now. Okay. So you're, 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 you're tending towards Canada. Yes, uh, yeah. but we're on a trajectory where we could go the other way. So we've got a new government, we've got some sound people in. Uh, it could be reversed at this point, but it, I don't have faith in it. I don't have faith in governments and politicians, so we'll see. But I think you guys, you guys have it the worst. I think what's happening over there is demonic. I think, you know, the, what the fact that I'm, a, I don't, I'm sure you probably saw Matt Walsh's documentary, which was fantastic. The, yeah. the parents that aren't able to say anything to their own children yeah. about these horrible infective ideologies and then we've got these these teachers that they call themselves teachers that are expressing their sexual kinks in front of the children involving the children in their kinks and, and the government's standing up for them rather than the kids yeah it's unbelievable look i mean as you know uh calvin the, 
all of these ideas originate within the university ecosystem, regrettably. I say regrettably because, you know, I feel culpable by proxy, the, the fact that it's my fellow academics that were the originators of all of the, the you know, these parasitic and basilic ideas. And mm -hmm. of course, Canada and Quebec in particular, uh, you know, are just a hotbed of this stuff. So imagine being me walking mm -hmm. around within the university ecosystem every day. And so, you know, I've been trying to warn people for, for decades because, I mean, I saw all this stuff coming way before. I mean, I'm not saying this so that I can be gleeful and say, I told no, you. No, no, it's nothing. Yeah, I get you. It's nothing to be gleeful about. You know, exactly. And uh, I do feel, though, you know, maybe I'm going to be optimistic here. I do feel as though we may have reached apex, apex, you know, wokeness. Do you feel that as well? Because you just said earlier that, you know, you've got a new government. Maybe things are going to start to go the other way towards the Orban, uh, you know, continuum. Do you feel that we've reached peak lunacy and we're starting to autocorrect? I hope so. And I think that the madder it gets, the better for us. When we see these horrible teachers with their massive prosthetics, normal folk are saying, wait a minute, I'm okay with someone identifying as a different gender because it doesn't affect me, but this, this is a step too far. And there are a lot of these little step too fars popping up. We need more of them. We need the lunacy, the extreme end of this wokeness to keep showing and exposing itself. And that's why I love things like libs on TikTok or whatever it is, your yeah. Twitter account, that doesn't commentate, doesn't pass any um, judgment. It just says, look, this is what these people are doing. And it's crazy the response that they get. Yeah, no kidding. Now, as someone, so the next thing I want to talk about in terms of the British context, of course, you guys have had, uh, not unlike many uh, Western countries, a huge influx of immigrants, many of whom do not share your affinity for Judeo-Christian traditions. Mm -hmm. uh, what are your thoughts on uh, the, the, the current reality of immigration in Britain? Do you think that this is something that uh, will result in irrevocable damage to British values, or is are the numbers sufficiently small that Britain will forevermore remain a Judeo-Christian Judeo country? It may already be too late. You think so, huh? The Conservative government has been voted in for the last 12 years, every single time with a mandate to cut immigration. This year, we had a million immigrants. It's ridiculous. That That's a record number. So it's going up and up and up. And I get that we've had the Hong Kong crisis. Sure, we had a duty. And I believe that we should have taken on Hong Kongers over here because they, it was part of Britain. We let them down by giving it back to corrupt China. And we've had the Afghan crisis. Again, we were involved in that. It was a great shame that we let America mess that up. But, and we've had crisis after crisis after crisis. But at the same time, we've still got people coming over the channel. People are just getting in little dinghies, swimming from France over to, the great, over to great Britain. We're not doing a thing about it. And it's... All of our infrastructure is at risk. Hospitals, schools, everything is at breaking point. But not only that, the culture is what's at risk. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna be frank because I'm sick of treading on eggshells now. I'm, I'm starting to be more open this with this. The problem is Islam. Islam is fundamentally the antithesis of British values. It's incompatible with British values. Sharia law is not something that will ever work alongside UK law or English law. It just does not work. And that's not to say that Muslims are bad people. I'm, I'm not saying that. I, I hate the sin, not the sinner. And I think Islam itself is a problem. The values of the way that they treat women, the way that they treat people that they don't believe in, um, um, don't get along with, the, the way that they treat other faiths, that the superiority complex that is inbuilt into the religion of either revert or die, um, the harmful um, idea about age of consent and bigamy 
And I mean, we could go on and on and on in the ways that Islam is incompatible with the West, but just saying that gets you marked as a racist. And I'm not a racist, of course I'm not a racist. First of all, Islam isn't a race, it's a, it's a religious, religious ideology that I disagree with, but we should always be able to criticize religious ideologies. And we can, every single one, especially Judaism gets criticized all the time. Christianity more and more. Why are we not allowed to criticize Islam? Well, you know, and that's what amazes me. I mean, you could, you could, you could criticize and mock Judaism from here till Kingdom Come, and I wouldn't care. And again, it has nothing to do with whether I am a, you know, severely practicing Jew or not. I am strong enough in my personhood and strong enough in the sense of shared heritage I have with fellow Jews that you could mock me all day. If anything, the fact that I could withstand your mockery and still be a Jew is a testament to the strength of my heritage, right? And if my my belief system is so brittle that it can't withstand scrutiny, mockery, satire, that speaks to it being not necessarily the truth, no? No, and in this country, one of our core values, there are three main British values. One of them is tolerance of other faiths and none. And that, you know, people will tolerate any faith or people with no faiths. But Islam or Muslims within Islam faith cannot tolerate people of other faiths. That's the problem. As in, we don't have blasphemy laws in the UK. Uh, people could draw an offensive picture of Jesus. It might actually upset me. It might offend me. But there's nothing I can do about it. And I support their right to do it because that's free speech and that's the country that I want to live in. And yeah. it's the same with everything except the Prophet Muhammad. Uh, some, I'm sat here like, well, we don't have Sharia law. We don't have blasphemy laws. We haven't in about 100 years. Why is this? Why is there an exception to UK law? What is going on? And there is, because there was a teacher who demonstrated in, in Batley Grammar, demonstrated um, what the trolley Hebdo situation, showed a picture of um, the Prophet Muhammad and talked about blasphemy. And uh, he's been in hiding ever since because people, more well, not people, because Muslims literally want to kill him for breaking their laws. It's like, well, no, this is the UK. He's, he, he was perfectly okay to do what he did. He didn't break any laws in the UK. Are there any outspoken politicians currently in Britain who will say the things that you just told me the last five minutes. And now, uh, and let me let me kind of contextualize the, the type of figure I might be talking about. I mean, he wasn't necessarily a politician, but if you remember Tommy Robinson, who seems to have kind of disappeared from the face of the earth, he used to be kind of the, uh, the exemplar of someone in Britain who was very vociferous in his anti-Islam criticism. Is there such a figure today? Uh, and if so, who is it? Uh, I'd say he, he's still doing what he does. Um, he's not uh, polished enough to be a politician. You know, he's, he's too aggressive in his, in his approach, and that's to his detriment, because I think he does have some important things to say, and no one will ever listen to him because of the way he says them. Uh, I don't think anyone is approaching this topic. And that is, this is the great shame, because there are... Pakistani Muslim grooming gangs. And it's very, very specific to Pakistani Muslim communities. So it's not, I'm not anti-Pakistani. It's not, it's not a cultural thing from the country. It's Pakistani Muslim individuals that are gang raping young white British girls because they see them as, as a commodity, as less than a human being. And they're, they're getting together, raping these poor girls and getting away with it because the police, the social services, the councillors, as high up as the government are petrified of a race war. And so they're saying for the sake of diversity, this needs to be swept under the carpet. So we are sacrificing young white British girls for the sake of diversity, equality, and inclusion. I guess the, mo the most uh, famous example of these many cases of uh, you know rampant grooming and raping is the Rotherham case, correct? 
that's that's the real. So has there been the the same incidence of these types of situations or or has that been on the decline? Because you sort of hear about it less these days. Yeah, it's endemic. It's Rotherham, it's Telford, it's Rochdale, it's uh, um, what's the word? Blackpool. That's a big one that's going to come out soon. It's everywhere. It's in every town, every city where there are Pakistani Muslim communities because these communities aren't integrated into British society. First of all, many of the, the women don't speak English. They're not allowed to. So they're siloed and ghettoized amongst themselves, which is a dangerous situation to be in anyway because it doesn't promote social cohesion. And then the, the Pakistani Muslim men are taking advantage of young white British girls and the authorities are scared to death of doing anything about it and sometimes even complicit. We've seen evidence that suggests that they've let people off on purpose. And when the reports come out, so that the, the um, not the Rochdale report, the uh, Rotherham report came out and nothing's been done, nothing's changed. It's still going on. And people come out, you know, the councillors come out and say, we're, we're greatly sorry or we greatly regret the situation, but do something about it. Yeah. Wow, unbelievable. Uh, what are your thoughts about the uh, new prime minister? What, what What's your feelings about her? Um, she's a liberal. Um, at least she's economically conservative, which is uh, better than nothing. Uh, so by liberal, uh, you mean she's socially liberal? That's what you mean? Yeah, she's not woke, but she's so, just traditionally socially liberal, as in, yeah, do what you like as long as you're not harming anyone else kind of thing. Uh, she, she's not a conservative, so she's not along my way of thinking, which is a great shame. Uh, I was a big supporter of Kemi Badnock, who is conservative. I think she would have made a big difference. I'm glad she's in the cabinet, at least. That will be helpful. And the same with Suella Braverman. Those two, actually, you, you asked me if there are any conservatives. Those two are good conservatives in, in UK politics. There aren't many others. People say people like um, Jacob Rees-Mogg, but you know, he, he's aesthetically conservative. But I, I need to see people who are meaty and, uh, and speak from the chest about these issues. Uh, yeah, Liz Truss, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt. Let's see what happens. Well, that's charitable of you. Uh, where? So let's talk about uh, two more things I'd like to talk to you about, sort of your, your career trajectory moving forward, and then arguably the most important thing that we'll cover today, what is your favorite soccer team? But hold off for a second before we cover that. Uh, so, you know, you've, you, of course you write, you you appear on, uh, on, uh, you know, various media television, mm-hmm. uh, you, I think were running for political office, weren't you? And then you, you kind of dropped yeah. out and so on. So uh, now of course you you were ordained recently as a deacon. So are, are these different hats that you wear something that you might be able to pursue moving forward, all of them with full alacrity? Or, you know, if I become a established deacon and then become a priest, that's where I'm going to go. Or I'd like to go into politics, notwithstanding the fact that I became a deacon. What's your career trajectory looking like five, 10 years from now? Honestly, I don't have one. I don't have any career ambitions, any career goals. I literally just try to walk through the do- through the doors that God opens to me. That's the, the, what I try to do. Um, and it's been difficult, it's been challenging, but I'm called to proclaim the good news. I'm called to fight the good fight for the faith and to conserve our Christian values and to help lead people to Christ. And if that means doing so as a deacon, great. And I think that helps me. First of all, it humbles me. But secondly, I'm on the ground with normal folk, with normal issues, able to support them. And that's important when I do go in the media and talk about issues. I have first-hand experience with them. But I don't have any goals to become like a full-time media person. You know, I've been offered media roles 
and think tank roles and that kind of stuff and turn them down. Just yesterday, Channel 4 phoned up about a new documentary they wanted to do. I said, no, I have other commitments. I've got to focus on my church. It's, so it's not a, I use the platform that I've been gifted to do what I feel I've been called to do, which is to spread the good news. And if something helps with that, I'll take it on board. If it doesn't, I will disregard it. It's not about me personally. You know, my platform could be gone tomorrow. And, you know, people at the end of these podcasts always say, well, where can people find you? What's your Twitter? I don't even bother promoting my Twitter because I understand that in, in the click of a button, it, those 200,000 followers could be gone and it means nothing. I'm gifted it in order to do something good and it can be snatched away at any moment. Well, that's a beautiful uh, answer. I guess what is clear in the, the way you answer that question is that it's not difficult for you to find purpose and meaning in your life because by definition the calling that you are speaking of is is precisely how people will typically think of how to find purpose and meaning, correct? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I've, I've never struggled with purpose and meaning. Um, that is something that heads towards. And I think, you know, a lot, a lot of people focus on the, the, the end goals rather than the journey. And life is a journey. And we all know this if we, if we study philosophy. And, you know, people who are in my line of work say, well, how do you get to 200,000 followers? Or how do you get to get your own... Um, program on tv it's like but that shouldn't be the objective i've happened mm -hmm. to fall into that because of the work that i've been doing and it's like even if people say how do you end up writing for the telegraph it's like no write just write focus on writing and if what you're writing is good people will want to see it they they have the, the thing the whole way upside down absolutely That's what I find quite sad. and i actually i know exactly what you're talking about because i receive many emails or even sometimes in person where someone approaches me and says you know i would like to be a public intellectual like you dr sad what should i do <laughs> I said, well, I didn't set out to be a public intellectual. Yeah. I, I, I had a, I had hopefully things that were interesting that that I was saying, and it was the consequence of what I said resulted in my getting this many followers yeah. or that many followers. I'm, a, I'm a one man show. I don't have a marketing team. I don't, I don't strategize. I just, yeah. you know, when I started my channel, it was with no. I mean, I, I've made, you know, probably two cents an hour in terms of you know, how my time has been monetized. But hey, I get to speak to Calvin Robinson about interesting things on a Friday afternoon. And if tons of people tune in, hey, I win. Uh, so I agree with you. It really is about the journey. Uh, don't strategize and hopefully good things will happen. Okay, so let's now go to the, as I, as I promised, the most important question of the day, which team do you support? And this, as I've often said before, will either strengthen our friendship or we'll end it today. So, so thank you. Oh. God, I hate to ruin such a good conversation with you, but I don't like football. Uh-oh. So, really? No. I, didn't yeah, even know. I, I thought that was an impossibility. Is there know, such I a know. thing as a British person who doesn't like football? I know. My grandfather played for a professional team. He played for Nottingham Forest. Oh, so I suppose just... that would be my default option. Wow. Um, so no. that, they just got back to the premiership. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're doing good. Um, yeah. Most people in my family either play rugby or taekwondo, so they are they are main sports. But yeah, I don't follow any football. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> wow. Because okay. I I recently had I mean maybe about four or five months ago I had you know who Neil Ferguson the historian is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I recently had him on the show and I asked him and I think if I remember correctly his answer was Arsenal. Uh, I used to like Arsenal in the past, but no longer. Now I am a Manchester City fan, not because they won. Uh, but be, because I mean, Liverpool also won, and I can't stand them. Manchester United's okay. won, I can't stand them. I love Manchester City because, speaking of earlier, we mentioned Sir Rogers, uh, you know, uh, philosophy of aesthetics. I love. 
the aesthetics of Manchester City. The way they play is like a ballet, the sticky taka. It's beautiful. So anyways, if you get a chance to watch them, I would highly recommend. And if you can watch Kevin De Bruyne, who is an absolute artist, please watch him. Uh, well, where I live in London, everyone supports Arsenal. There you go. Uh, so last question. I've been invited to participate in a debate at Oxford Union. Should I come? And will the royal family extend a red carpet when Dr. Saad comes to England? <laughs> I'm sure they will, no doubt. Um, you absolutely should come. It's great fun. Oxford is one of the most beautiful cities in the country. It's a great reminder of what conservatism is about because you look at a picture of Oxford 100 years ago against a photograph of today. It looks exactly the same except for the tarmac over the cobbled floor. And that's what should be preserving the beautiful architecture. It's our history, our heritage. The union itself is woke. The university is corrupt under the uh, wallet of China. Uh, but you'll enjoy it. It will be good fun. You'll have lots of woke students to debate against. Uh, I'm sure they'll, they'll be challenged by your intellect. So you should definitely come over. Well, if I do come over, I hope to get the opportunity to meet you in person, shake your hand, maybe give you a little hug. Such a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad that we were finally able to schedule this, uh, Calvin. Stay on the line so we could say goodbye offline. Thank you so much for coming on. Cheers. The pleasure is mine. God bless you. Thank you so much.